I'm Jason Van Metting. And I'm Ksenia Chmutana. Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. So welcome to another episode of Disasters Deconstructed. As you guys who are listening might um, know, a lot of our first season has been about what disasters really are, why they happen, and who they impact. Today we're going to talk more about how people recover after disasters. What makes a successful recovery, and according to who is it successful? Seems to me like the conversation will be closely linked to some of the recent episodes we did about capacities with JC Gallard. Well, and we've got two quite cool speakers with us today. So we've got Danielle Aldrich and we've got Wes Cheek. Wes is actually, we're in the same room, uh, sitting here in Kyoto. And Daniel, where are, where are you? Where are you sitting? In Boston, Massachusetts. Oh, there we go. Globalized episode. How exciting. But right, let me tell you a little bit about our speakers. And then I'm sure Wes and Daniel will tell us more about their research. So Daniel is a professor of political science and public policy at Northeastern University. And he's been doing quite a lot of uh, work in Japan recently. And, you know, we'll discuss this more today. And Wes Cheek is now a research fellow at the um, Ritsumeikan University um, and at the Institute of Disaster Mitigation for Urban Cultural Heritage. Correct. Welcome. Yay. Welcome, guys. Thank you. So um, maybe you could both kick us off by telling our listeners a bit more about your work and um, particularly what you think the critical components of successful disaster recovery are. Uh, so more about my work? Uh, sure. So my research has mainly been um, about community participation in post-disaster reconstruction. And my research area is the community of Minami Sanriku in uh, the Tohoku area of Japan, which was, of course, uh, affected by the uh, Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami in two March 2011. Um, so I look into what we mean by community uh, participation and what that kind of reconstruction looks like. Um, and the second part of your question is, what do I think is a successful reconstruction? And I think maybe that... Um, is the, ac the accurate meaning of begging the question a little bit and thinking that there has been a successful reconstruction. Um, and I hate to be a pessimist on this. I'm not sure that I've seen one yet. So I will let you know as soon as I see one. Okay. Wow, that's tough to follow. So this is Daniel Aldrich. My main interest, I think, is how social networks and social ties interact with disaster and crisis outcomes. And I do some work in Japan. I also do work now in Mexico, in North America, some work in Israel, and also in India. And what I'm usually looking for is to see how things like social trust, cohesion, and interactions affect things like mortality during the shock, the recovery process, mental health, and that kind of stuff. I have been doing work in Japan. I've got a book that just came out called Black Wave, and that book looks very closely at a number of cities in Tohoku. We're talking about the 311 triple disasters. Uh, things like the mortality re mortality rates, how things uh, survive the process, recovery rates, and also long-term mental health. And I would say in terms of a successful outcome, I've seen individual neighborhoods that have done quite well. I have also not yet necessarily seen one city nail all aspects of the recovery process. Color 
It's interesting because very often recovering reconstruction I actually consider as an, as an opportunity to kind of build back better, right? In quotation mark. Um, so, you know, it, it, there is an opportunity to do something better than we've done before. And there is also an opportunity for social change. But as you both said, actually, there are limits to what we can do and there are limits um, to how we do it. So do you think we can learn from Japanese experience, you know, but you both said that it kind of, it wasn't as successful as maybe we portray in the media and in academic writing, or was it, you know, what's, what's your opinion on this? So I'll jump in, Daniel here. So a few things. One is there are a lot of stereotypes that I've seen about the recovery, many of them at the individual level, and that bothered me a lot. A lot of stuff about stoicism and Japanese indifference to suffering kind of stuff. A lot of the first tropes that came out are about people waiting in lines and so forth. I think that missed a lot of the more interesting stuff going on, really angry rock music, really angry protests and music and art and dance, which found a lot of voice to protest what was going on, both in terms of what the government did, but also in terms of broader mistakes made by the companies like TEPCO, the Tokyo Electric Power Company. So that's one thing, I didn't like that trope. Also, more broadly, Japan really invested heavily in physical infrastructure, mitigation structures, like seawalls and berms. And our data at least show almost none of those seawalls did much to save lives at the local level. So that was an overall choice Japanese government made to invest really heavily in physical infrastructure and not social infrastructure. And finally, I would say that a lot of the challenges I've seen at least have been in the top-down response. Much of the process of reconstruction and recovery has come about because of mandates, more or less, from the central and regional governments that local governments are often following without questioning. So you have this set of problems simultaneously, stereotypes about what's going on based on culture, a number of challenges in terms of local resources, and an overall system that's biased from a top-down perspective. Yeah, I hate to be the person to go out and agree with Daniel here, but I'm going to agree with Daniel. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons I got into researching this, is I was living in Japan at the time of the, the earthquake and tsunami, and the international coverage I was seeing seemed so uh, skewed and even uh, Orientalist in a way of saying that, uh, look at the stoicism of the Japanese when in fact, if you were on the ground there, uh, that's not what I was seeing or what a lot of people were seeing at all. It was very angry people and people who were undergoing a lot of suffering, but they didn't necessarily fit the narrative um, as well. And uh, also to Daniel's point, yeah, a lot of what we see is that Japan is very good at doing certain things. Um, one of those is doing really centrally planned, top-down, technocratic uh, engineering, civil engineering projects, right? And that's the way that Japan kind of powered itself through the bubble economy and through difficulties they had with the transition out of the bubble economy. And so a lot of the success stories that you see are well-financed, um, well-executed civil engineering pro projects that may not be what the people in those particular communities are uh, – interested in or want to do but what has been prescribed that they are going to do you know like something interesting you both said is that the the portrayal of japanese people and their kind of heroism you know in in times of disaster and it's quite rare actually because very often we see weakness and vulnerability right so mm -hmm. we kind of now if we look at dorian coverage for example right. we look at wreckage right and death and you know people's livelihoods destroyed and it's really rare that we see that other side whether 
it's right. right or wrong. So why do you think Japan is portrayed in that way as like, you know, stoic and resilient, heroic nation? I'll give a quick answer real quick and I'll let, I'll let Daniel go. But I, you know, Daniel, I know you're, you and your family were affected by Hurricane Katrina. And then I've lived in New Orleans since then. And my, you know, my family's from the area and I was in Japan when Hurricane Katrina happened. But I think a lot of times America has, as, as we've, as it's been proved time and time again, a, a, myth, a myth about what happens during disasters and a myth that tries to put onto oppressed communities of saying, look at how badly people behave during disasters, which we know is not true. Right. Um, and that I think that, a lot of times American media tries to set up the counter narrative that says, well, look at how well behaved a country like Japan is not like us. When in fact, you know, I was, I was in Tohoku a week after the tsunami and people were, you know, people were drunk. People had taken things from abandoned stores. People were burning businesses for fuel because they needed it. Right. People were doing what they needed to do to survive. Just like people in new Orleans were doing. Right. It's just, um, the narrative needed a balance, I think, would be one way I'd say it. Yeah, I'm completely on board with that. I think that for sure the American press loves to argue that our typical response in North America somehow is about, you know, looting, rioting, the loss of social control. And somebody who hears Japan with 18,400 deaths and they're doing so well. But of course, oftentimes those news crews in Japan, they didn't speak Jap- Japanese at all if, if very well. Exactly. They didn't have people on the ground inside the shelters. So, I mean, I visited a lot of areas, even when the emperor came, uh, I mean, a lot of moments like this, right? Uh, the highest authority figure in the land and people said pretty snarky stuff, ugly stuff. Um, certainly there've been a lot of lawsuits that haven't been covered by the Western media. Uh, right. Lawsuits in Japan typically are rare, but after the after 311 disasters, the banks are being sued uh, for what they did with their personnel. Schools are being sued by parents whose children died that day. Right. The government's being sued, TEPCO's being sued for lack of compensation. These are all areas when, until now, even scholars have often argued Japanese conflict is somehow hidden or behind the scenes. And certainly, I, I have not seen that trope coming true in 311. Yeah, I was in uh, a really interesting meeting like a week after the tsunami where in Kesanuma, where the uh, mayor was meeting with the former head of, I think, the agriculture department uh, who was in charge of fisheries. And the fishermen were you know, yelling at him and shouting him down and saying government officials uh, always come up here with empty promises. We don't believe anything they say. Like, why should we believe you now? Right. And the point that you make about um, foreign or international reporters not having Japanese language ability was a huge gap. I, I was... I was the only uh, non-Japanese reporter in the room at the time, and it didn't get covered. And I was asking the international press to pick up on it, and they wouldn't. And I think one of the other things was that bothered me at the time is so many, uh, so much of the international press were Tokyo-based, and they were used to covering urban Japan, in particular Tokyo. And this disaster largely happened to rural Japan, and they had no idea how to make sense of rural Japan. It was something that, that was really hard for them to read, I think. I would add even one more thing, just to make this answer even longer. I've also seen <laughs> stereotypes in Japan about rural Japan. Like often I'll, I'll give a talk in Japan about differences among cities and neighborhoods in Tohoku. And everyone will say, but I don't understand. I thought, you know, rural to- Tohoku was supposed to be the most connected, socially cohesive, everyone gets along kind of stuff, unlike Tokyo. And that's a very, right. even, even in Japan, a, tro- a trope that's pretty regular, right, right. is that mm-hmm. somehow they have it still right in the countryside, we city, f- city folk are getting it wrong. So I think right. all those reasons together meant we just did not really see very good accurate coverage of what was been going on there sure and you bring up lawsuits you know one of the biggest lawsuits or one of the most notable ones in japan is you know the mayor of minami sanriku getting sued for 
abandoning his post, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, so um, Daniel, I want to talk to you a bit more about your new book called Black Wave. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, so in your book, you're arguing that individuals in, and communities with stronger networks and better governance have higher survival rates and accelerated recoveries. And conversely, less connected communities uh, face a harder recovery process. Um, so it, it seems like you're really connecting there with the importance of um, capacities. So how important is that? And more broadly, in your work, you talk a lot about social capital, right? So, and, and that it's basically the most important thing. So does that conflict with, with the perspective of people who talk about root causes and kind of injustice and inequality being the basis of risk creation? Yeah, this is a great question. The intersection between let's call them social networks and vulnerability. Yeah. And I think in in many ways, certainly the people who passed away because of the tsunami, the vast majority of those victims were individuals that we would call vulnerable, individuals over the age of 65, for example, uh, people trapped in homes or wheelchairs or hospital beds. So certainly at that level, the people who were who died were those who fit our standard understanding, which is that the vulnerable are the ones who often die. But the next stage for me, though, was noticing that in those who survived, right, this is the sort of the flip side, those who survived did so precisely because they lived in an area with a strong network, with a strong caregiver system, with a neighbor nearby who came to check on them, with someone who came and carried them literally uphill, you know, 1.5 kilometers. So the stories that I, that I got begin interviewing soon afterwards really showed me the other side. It's true, of course, that the vulnerable are the ones who typically, whether it's in terms of where their housing was, or their ability to flee, or their ability to get out of the area because of transportation, all those are absolutely true. But the flip side is, and at some level, social networks and governance are almost like a substitute, right, in those cases. That is to say, someone, and we actually have a new paper just published about uh, two months ago on this, individuals who are elderly but had strong networks, those are the individuals actually who did much better than the elderly or infirm who had weak networks. So, th so there's this interaction that we don't talk about very much, which is to what degree can a neighbor, a caregiving system, a network of individuals help people who are what we define as vulnerable? The other thing I noticed as well, and this is toward the end of the book, there are really whole communities now, like the Ibasho Project, for example, in Masakicho, which are based around, quote, the vulnerable. That is to say, the, the leaders of that program are all over 65. Their target audience are the elderly. And there, rather than seeing the elderly as either a vulnerable group or a burden, they see them as wisdom incarnate, people they can talk to, get advice from, people who can help lead the community. So definitely the vulnerability is a real process. I just think we haven't gone far enough in the field to think through, okay, if vulnerability is real, what factors then either mitigate it or make it more into a strength? Yeah, and I, I really see a, a connection to our conversation with JC um, a couple of months ago where he was advocating for building capacities rather than um, maybe investing in um, trying to to address root causes in terms of kind of humanitarian action and NGO response, because the capacity, capacity building was something that you could do right away. And the vulnerability reduction was kind of a long-term structural problem, right? 
Right, exactly. Especially, again, because we, we tend to define age as a vulnerability, right? There's no way to reverse age, right? If someone, yeah. you know, my parents are now in their late 70s, uh, we, we can't, for example, invent a new drug or some kind of process that will reverse their age and make them stronger and younger. But what we can do, and this is the part we don't think about, is make sure they're embedded in a community. They're living in a place where they've got neighbors who care about them, people right nearby who'll knock on their door if there's a power outage or if they need their insulin or whatever else, right? So we have those moments where those groups who can't be moved from a vulnerable status can still come through not only with strength but with leadership and i think that's why i really liked about this project you know i think one one of the things that's really striking about uh the 311 disaster is that in in the immediately what happened um the the death seems so random to us right you could have done the i write about this in my dissertation you could have done the exact right thing and still been killed by the tsunami, right? You could have done the wrong thing and by random chance survived by something you didn't really notice about the topography or something that you, you know, you, there's no way to write, make the right, the correct decision uh, in those circumstances. It's really difficult. Um, but I think, you know, what Daniel's getting at and that we have seen is that uh, people as kind of groups, um, you can really see them when I when I interview people about like what happened to them in that moment. We see people making decisions together as groups and kind of uh, one thing you see in particular in in the Shizugawa area of Minami Sanriku is that people would heard the announcement saying, "Look, this this wave is really big. It's going to be a lot bigger than we expected. You really need to get higher." And kind of saying to each other, "Okay, we need to follow those directions. We need to listen to that." Right. And so I think we do see people who have connections to each other functioning in these kind of groups and kind of affecting each other's survival. So I do see definitely what Daniel's talking about in that sense. You've been yeah. in Japan for quite a long time. So too too long, of, yeah. <laughs> too long. Um, your background is quite cool. So you've you've talked. <laughs> it's cool, school, but thank you. Know, you yeah, yeah, and you've been a photojournalist, and then you've done your PhD. So you have quite uh, a good appreciation of a diverse society in Japan. I, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> so and you know, then when you were doing your research. Did it sort of help you to understand what is happening in terms of like society, the relationship between society and disaster? How did you see it from your kind of Western slash Japanese yeah. perspective? So I'll, I'll be brief about the story, but kind of what happened was I was a, a very typical uh, American in Japan story, which is I've been an exchange student. I got on the jet program. Uh, they sent me to Miyazaki, which is in Kyushu in the middle of nowhere. And I lived there for a while doing that. I moved to... Uh, Kyoto and was teaching junior high in Osaka, right? Um, and I was also at the same time kind of doing photojournalism, but mainly for like underground mixed martial arts competitions, right? Like not covering <laughs> <Cool>. disasters, right? <laughs> um, uh, so, so, but like what happened, you know, and it kind of goes to what Daniel was talking about when the disaster happened, so many of us who were living here were watching the international coverage and saying, this seems clueless right this seems like they don't get it and i think the main thing and i touched on this earlier for me that i felt like i could help with was because i had lived in rural japan for my first five or six years here i felt like i understood um what it was to not you know not be be outside of tokyo which is a huge thing in, in japan right yeah. um 
And so like, I was really trying to find a way, well, how can I put that to use? And I contacted a photographer friend who said like, absolutely, we need people to go. And I originally went as a photojournalist and I went with another photojournalist and we talked on our drive up there, which at the time was, it took us 17 hours to get up there. So it's such a crazy time. Uh, but we were like, how do we do this in a non-exploitative way, right? Like, how do we actually depict this? And, and we both kind of agreed on like, we're going to take our understanding of a different kind of Japan, like a Japan that's not metropolitan that's not Tokyo and kind of go out and just talk to people and and kind of understand how this is functioning. And so I think my kind of entry into it was from that viewpoint of trying to be someone who um who who understood life in in that sense, right? Like right. which I think is you know, I think that's a huge divide. And you know, I'm from an urban studies background, so we'll debate whether rural urban is a real divide, you know, all day long. But from from that real kind of outside of of the of the real, I guess I'll use urban just as a placeholder here, environment, um, you know, which, which life in Japan is very different outside of that. Right. So Wes, I was just thinking about your experiences as photojournalist and wondering how that informed your approach to research or like Having that artistic lens and looking at stories and narratives, how does that inform the research that you do? It's been so helpful. It really has. And I have to say, I was a bad photojournalist because, <laughs> and I realized this when I was working in Tohoku, like really, I can tell you the moment I realized it. The, uh, the guy I was working with was an experienced news photojournalist, right? And But he didn't speak Japanese, uh, but he was really good about any kind of emotional like tragic situation, he would get in there and take pictures of it. And he would say, like, we have to get this image out there. He would, we'd have arguments about this. He would say, we have to get, this is our job. We have to, people need to know about this. It needs to be documented. And I agreed with him, but I couldn't do it, right? I couldn't. And there was a moment where we we're in uh, Ishinomaki, and we, we went into a tent in which people were putting up the names of missing relatives that they were looking for, right? Um, and I, I, cause I speak Japanese, I could read these names and I was reading the people's names and I came across like this family and they had like my wife's last name. Right. And I, I looked at him and I said, I can't, I can't do this anymore. Right. And I left the tent and he was like, you have to do this. This is the job. Right. And I was like, yeah. And I can't do this job. Right. Um, and so I think being a, I think it's a really essential job to be able to take those photographs. I also know that I can't, but uh having that like having spent weeks there taking photographs um has been essential to my research because I can go back now because I'm an ethnographer now right and I can go back and check and see if if what I saw is really what I saw and when it happened right I can look at the meta metadata on the photo and say oh that's the day that was mm -hmm. this is where I was I can look back at my notes and say that's the person I talked to right so I have this really great um data set in a way that that was going on like right in the immediate aftermath of this that I'm able to take with me through my research, which I didn't know was going to be my research at the time. Right. And I have that that I can that I can use and draw from to really kind of put my thoughts together about what I was seeing. You should do a photo book. I, you know, I you know, I never know. Like I. <laughs> I'm not, this is why I'm not good at this is because I'm very conflicted about how I use those photos. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I probably shouldn't be, I don't know. I never know, but like, uh, but they are useful to my research. 
But I think that's going back to the kind of portraying of disaster, you know, and how very often right. um, we see destruction and kind of victimhood where it doesn't have to be. Like, I personally think that we those images are not useful because that's right. an immediate association, right. you know, with, like, death and yeah. destruction. But then is there any other way of getting people feel... Yeah, I can be emotional about it. I don't know. Sure. And it's hard. And I talked to people at the time. And one of my questions at the time was like, what do you want me to like do with this? Right. And they're like, well, I want people to know that this is happening. Right. I want them to know that we're suffering. I want them to not forget about this. So, you know, people want those images out there. Um, but, you know, I feel conflicted about being the vehicle for that. You know? You know, internationally, Japan is often praised for its efforts in DRR, right? And so some view its um, technological advancement as an example of how technology can solve all our problems relating to hazards and disasters. Um, and, and some people might even prescribe a similar model to other countries that face similar threats. So could you both maybe um, speak to some of the particular characteristics of Japan that make it different? make it stand out and the government approach to DRR and whether this really works or what are some of the drawbacks? Yeah, so, so Daniel here. So I, I, I definitely agree compared to some societies. I've spent time in India, for example, after the 2004 tsunami, Japan's system is very well done. It has multiple layers, for example. It has buoys with information that can capture tsunami information. It has a variety of seismic sensors. It has broadcast speakers, cell phone, uh, TV, radio announcements it can provide. It has a variety, a wide variety of sensor stations and institutions that provide information. So that's great. Uh, and India had almost none of that, at least where I was in Tamil Nadu, uh, which was hit by the tsunami in 2004. It had very little of those systems. The challenge, I think, for Japan is, uh, as we heard earlier from West, the, the real uh, their, their typical approach, their, their standard approach is to build stuff, right? Invest in these large-scale public works projects, whether it's a new bridge or a new road or a port or a dam or a seawall. And something like 240 billion US dollars has gone into building these massive seawalls, even though there's no direct evidence that those seawalls uh, load mortality in the cities along the coast. So it's a standard operating procedure. It's a way that they do stuff without necessarily interrogating, is there data to support that? Is there empirical evidence that in fact, doing that kind of approach is the best way to go? So it's it's a great system. Again, compared to some like India, Vietnam, which are still building those systems, it's a great place to start. But I think what Japan ironically has lost sight of in many ways is the need to have a counterbalancing social infrastructure system with a combination of training, social cohesion, trust, all the kind of things that we need to get the information out and then acted upon, right? You can tell people whatever you like, but they're not going to evacuate unless they believe what's happening. And Japan had a number of mistakes it made immediately after the earthquake when the first predictions for wave height were one half to one third of the actual wave height that was coming. That was one mistake. Information on radiation was never released, even though there's a number of systems like Speedy that provide that information. So you, you had a number of areas where the Japanese government had a, a physical infrastructure system in place, but not the social infrastructure to back it up. 
Yes, yeah, absolutely right. I'll give you a few brief examples from, from my research. So Daniel brings up the seawall, and that's a huge issue in Minami Sanriku, where I was interviewing the head of reconstruction there last year. And I asked him about why it was built, even though it was so controversial within the, the town itself. And his answer was really plainly that the the country and the prefecture are offering up you know, $750 million. And he's like, can we turn down $750 million, right? And that's not only just to build the seawall, that's for uh, jobs for people in the community to build the seawall, right? Uh, so even if you, well, if you, you know, it's not that you were going to be arrested for not building the seawall, but that $750 million couldn't go to something else, right? It couldn't be used for something else. So once those choices start being on the table, that starts to be what communities are going to do, right? Like no community is going to turn down that much funding that they're not on the hook for. So Japan is is good at those kind of things, right? They are very good at... Uh, technocratic solutions are very good at engineering and they have a big enough economy to be able to do those things. But as Daniel points out, like, um, are those the effective solutions? Like we really don't know that, uh, just really briefly, I've, um, the seawall, you know, we, I've heard people promote it, but it seems like you could just as easily spend a 10th of the money and have, you know, army trucks waiting for a tsunami alert to go around and pick up everybody in the neighborhood and not necessitate a seawall. Or people in Minami Senrika will say, why are we building a seawall if we're already elevating the town, right? So all of these solutions are kind of things that um, are already just things that are, Japan does well and are also not coincidentally, the biggest lobbies in the country, which are construction and concrete, right? As Wes has said, there's, there's a political economy of reconstruction and of physical construction in that the LDP gets a lot of its money from construction firms that, of course, want these large-scale construction projects. So the LDP itself, always looking to show that it's doing something, can point to these seawalls or berms or moved uphill cities, right? It has a number of different ways to point, say, look what we've done. At the same time, it's getting its own funds for political political re-election precisely from those same firms. So there's a whole right, cycle exactly. of political economy behind the scenes begun to the question of, is there empirical evidence that, for example, having a seawall did save lives in these communities? Just, sorry, really quickly, the other things, the, the presence of the seawall also means people cannot see what's going on literally from your right. house, from your business. You can't see the threat. We have a number of reports that I found that said people actually went to the top of the seawalls to see the right. tsunami because they couldn't view it from their homes. And we also have some evidence that it's a moral hazard in the sense that if you believe the seawall is there protecting you because of this massive investment, why bother evacuating, right? And if you're going to stay, of course, in your in your home, in your business, and not try to move, that's the worst case scenario and across the entire board. Right. But I guess another problem here is that, you know, these um, solutions are then portrayed as good solutions internationally. Sure. And we've, you know, as we've been talking about this today, yes. how very often people think that okay this is this is the silver bullet we're gonna right. do what japan is doing yeah but then you've pointed out a number of times now that actually japan is kind of different planet you know it's a completely different case which cannot probably be replicated elsewhere and shouldn't be so how do we fight this portray of you know great things which may not necessarily be that great or if they are they wouldn't work elsewhere yeah it, i mean it's hard because like and i i went to links to point this out in my dissertation it's like i i feel like there's not a lot of like bad will involved in this, right? Like Japan does earnestly try hard 
sure. disaster mitigation. Mm -hmm. And it does try hard to disseminate that information out into the world. But it's a very particular type of information that is applicable in very particular settings, right? Like, so if you're a country without much, uh, without a strong, like, centralized, technocratic uh, elite, it's hard to implement these things. And you don't have the funding, it's hard to implement these things, right? And so I don't think they're all bad necessarily. It's just they're not all broadly applicable. Yeah, exactly. And I, I, I would add to that several things. You know, one is Japan in some society, in some cities, in some areas did quite well. And again, that's why I think a granular look at the evidence, where is mortality highest, where is mortality lowest, what happened in terms of recovery processes. I think the challenge we always have is we use shorthand, we use heuristics to make our lives easier. Saying Japan did it well is like saying all of New Orleans recovered. Parts of New Orleans recovered, right? And you've got to be very specific right. here. I tell my students early yeah. on in any class that I work with them, whenever someone asks you the question, how did City X do in a disaster? You tell them it's the wrong question. It should right. be how did Family X or Neighborhood Y or Community Z do, not how the city did as a whole. So asking about Japan as a whole in terms of an example for DRR, I think is missing the point. There are some great examples of, for example, social infrastructure building, places like Ibasho and Masakicho, a number of places like Onagawa that have community currencies, Chikisuka. I mean, the number of things that are going on across Japan that are very micro-local, hyper-local events, those are doing quite well. And yes, as a whole, Japan would probably do better than, let's say, in Indonesia or Philippines if there's another tsunami. But we have to recognize the tremendous variation across Japan that's a result of localized measures, localized culture, localized ideas, those institutions are really critical. So I, I would push people to think through, find concrete micro-local examples of success. Those are great to replicate. Thinking about Japan as a whole, perhaps is the wrong model to use. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly right. And so, you know, Japan is part of fault for that because Japan tries to market itself as a unity, right? As we are Japan, right? But Japan has many, many different um, types of localities and types of situations and is a lot more diverse than it even gives itself uh, credit or notice for it, right? And so I think, uh, especially as outsiders, we tend to just classify it as Japan does something when that's not accurate in the least. When you say I'll dig much deeper, I'll shout. Let me know when I get closer, open up the sky for me. When you say I'll dig much deeper, I'll shout. Thank you both for um, coming on to Disasters Deconstructed. We've been talking to Wes Cheek and Daniel Aldrich. What does successful disaster recovery look like and does it even exist? So thank you guys for sharing your insights about Japan. Thank you. Thanks for having me. One thing we wanted to mention to listeners was that for the end of the first season, we're going to do a compilation episode of your favorite bits and your favorite interviews and one-liners that people said. Um, so please send us your suggestions on Twitter or to our email, disastersdecon at gmail.com um, for what you want to hear in that wrap-up episode. And we're going to reflect on some of the favorite pieces of season one. So um, please do that in the next few weeks and we're going to compile that episode. Thanks, guys. And as always, download your podcast wherever you get us from. Uh, we're available on, I think, all the podcast apps. Stitcher. I think <laughs> what? SoundCloud. I think, uh, I don't know about SoundCloud. Apple 
podcasts. Yes. yes. Google something. Spotify. Yes. Spotify. You're on Spotify. Yeah. 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 All right. Oh, we're cool like that. And carrier pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason, Wes, and Daniel on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.